0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. Really, really happy we're all back here because today I know we're going to have a really great conversation with our guest today because already, even before we started, we've been jumping on some amazing subjects and talking about all sorts of great things. So Kirk, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really
1: appreciate it. Thanks, AJ. It's great to be here.
0: You know, I've been going through your background and like going through Candor Advisors and everything. I love how you've come through this sort of financial advising, financial sales to sort of all the way into sort of now helping founder led businesses transition for sales and love the terminology you use. Could you just tell us a little bit about how you got to Candor Advisors? Being Candor would be good playing that. Sorry, that was a bad joke. It didn't work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to think I've always been candid. So, you know, candor yeah. is All right. got or to shine light upon. And I think that does kind of double click on a lot of the way we do what we do. The high level of how I got to candor is that for more than three decades, I've been in investments in finance, and I've been in client facing roles, and I've been in upper management strategy which I didn't like, by the way, I like client facing stuff, which is also why we only work with selling founders. What I realized, because my career kind of splits two thirds financial advisory and family office work and one third merger and acquisition buying and selling businesses. I've been a partner at a private equity firm and I've also helped sellers sell their company and build their deal teams. And then you know, for the last three and a half years, we have been kind of the accidental investment banker. It's not what we intended to do when we started out. We intended to just build the deal teams and make referrals. And we started getting asked to act as the banker. We were already licensed to do it. And we found that we were getting better outcomes. So we got rid of the imposter syndrome thing and said, okay, this is what we are. This is what the market has decided we're doing. And at this point, AJ, you know, the universe has me pitching a no hit shutout. So I'm not going to like wave off its calls all of a sudden. Um, You know, this is what we do. We have more demand for what we do than we have the willingness or ability to scale. You know, so yeah, that's how we got to where we are.
0: Okay. So you're now here. Maybe talk a little bit about where you are on your entrepreneurial journey, but like how this has now helped you. Because what I really love is in some of the things I've read, that you've written and some of the videos i watched about you, you really get the entrepreneurial need and the way you talk about that and kind of leading you a bit, but you talk really well about understanding when those moments, and you call
1: them inflection points, I think. I do. And, you know, I'll tell you, this is either a tangent, a digression, or like right down the middle of the fairway, but- Expert. I was on a Zoom call yesterday with a close friend of mine, who's the CEO of a biotech firm. And she and I went through something called the Modern Elder Academy down in Baja, California in a program called Radical Transitions. And we were talking about the way men process their feelings. Before she was in biotech, she was a federal prosecutor. And she said that she once toured Sing Sing and the warden told her, that 3% of the men that were in Sing Sing were so sociopathic and career criminal that they probably needed to be there because society wasn't safe with them out roaming the streets. And 97% of those men just didn't know how to process their feelings. And I think the reason that we're differentiated, in fact, I, I would say I know that the reason we're differentiated is that I talk to entrepreneurs founders, people that are thinking about selling, not just about the mechanics of how you sell and what structure and different terms and legacy control might mean to you, but also about the feelings you're going to go through. And I'm not just talking about the fact that you might go through an identity crisis after you've sold your business. Like, who am I? You know, because if you get eight, nine, ten figures for your business, you can buy therapy and figure out who you are. I'm talking about. The idea that it is hard for us men, and especially successful entrepreneurs who've in many cases learned how to politely ignore well-meaning bad advice about the business to then turn around and ask for help when they're at this key inflection point where it's for all the marbles, pretty much literally, to now all of a sudden be vulnerable and ask for help, that's a really, really hard thing for a man to do. But I would say it's also a really, really hard thing for an entrepreneur to do because we've worked with male and female entrepreneurs. And the convergence point is not knowing which help to ask for and not knowing which help to take, that's really, really hard. And it's still, if you're the entrepreneur and you're selling, you're still Don Quixote, we're Sancho Panza, it is your hero's journey. But the critical thing is, you know, kind of pick your guru, guide, gladiator, and lean on them. That doesn't mean you know stop listening to other good advice that you've used to build your business, but lean on that person for their experience, their scar tissue, their perspective, You know, because if you've found the right advisor, you're gonna get to the right outcome for you, whether that's the most money, the best terms, the best legacy control, you're gonna get to the right outcome if you collaborate the right way on your sale.
0: I like that. And I like that kind of approach just from learning from all the conversations you've had, and the support you've done to kind of get to this position. Because yeah, it's funny, a lot of conversations I've had with my own clients over the years, and then now, with audience members, when I do get the chance to talk with some is that like, well, how do I know? And it's like, you don't, you know, yes, there are some points, you should just expect some points always depending on your business model as you grow there will be complexity that increases yeah you may be able to sleep better because you have money in the bank but you will lose sleep because (laughs) the moving parts get (laughs) a little chunkier so i like that you bring that sort of like okay the emotion of asking all right so you came to this it seems like you were even talking earlier and i'm gonna kind of Because I do think this is an interesting thing because we've gone for like five, eight years, maybe even 10 years, that everyone talking about stoicism, so, but recently I've started seeing some discussion on NLP. And you were talking about sort of how you've used it and seen it, and you see this value. How can an entrepreneur kind of bring something like that to help them better understand where they are, how to
1: communicate that need of where
0: they are and how?
1: get help? I think there is both kind of a transactional awareness or a need for which tools you need for the thing you're about to go through. And then there's also the potential kind of lifelong learner model. So if you tend to be in the lifelong learner model, then you're like, probably like me, you're constantly reading different books. And I'm always reading something that is spiritual or self-improvement. I'm always reading something that is business or memoir or biographical something that will kind of inspire or stimulate and then i'm also always reading something that allows me to just escape for me that's mystery novels you know it's not that i don't like to you know stream stuff i you know my wife and i get into that kind of stuff too so one of the things that's interesting to me about NLP or neuro-linguistic programming, stoicism, even some of the philosophy behind religion. Like, you know, I like the idea of religion, but religious people tend to mess it up for me. So, you know, I just kind of focus execution. on what, you know, <laughs> yeah. what's the, you know, how about do this and don't be a jerk? How about practice? Kind of, others
0: what you want them to do on you. It's like, wait, yeah,
1: that, yeah, I core. mean, yeah. <laughs> I practice, I have a meditation practice, and I'll tell you that um, within my meditation practice, there is a practice called meta, M-A-T-T-A, and you know, you start with yourself, and may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be safe, may I be at peace, and then I move to my wife, and then I move to my kids, and then I move to someone who's kind of in the in-between space, somebody that maybe I just have an acquaintance with. Then maybe i move to somebody that i have a conflict with and then maybe i move outward to somebody i find reprehensible when i do that i connect better with all people neurolinguistic programming or nlp can kind of shortcut some of that so it could be you know that like look if i find that you and i don't have natural rapport but you want to hire me to sell your company then i have to figure out why it is we process differently If we're in a relationship, then I'm going to look at the five love languages and say, all right, you know, maybe your love language and mine are different. But if we're in a transactional relationship where we're trying to get to the right outcome for you and I need to figure you out, the simplest thing I can do with NLP is figure out, okay, are our shoulders moving up and down at the same time if we're in a face-to-face meeting? Are we breathing roughly the same way? That's the easiest way for me to start to mirror your posture, right? And then when I say, um, how does that feel to you, AJ? If you don't respond by kind of leaning in, then your processing mode is different than mine, right? You may say, well, it looks kind of funny or it doesn't sound that great to me. Okay, so then you're visual, you're auditory. And so the next time I'm trying to connect with you, I need to come to you in your style. Right. How does that sound? Right. So NLP, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, but NLP for me allowed me to start to understand our sameness. And it also because I'm an introvert, who would much rather be reading books and doing research and studying and working on deal structure than being at a networking event you know, because of that, I had to have certain tools that allowed me to do an extroverted job without just being constantly self-conscious. And so that's where that came from. And the stoicism supplements that because if I'm critical with self, but generous with others, then things work out better. I can only control what's in here. You know, as Edith Egger, you know, the the famous psychologist and Auschwitz survivor talks about in both the choice and the gift, we get into a prison of our own making, no matter what that is, and only we can let ourselves out of that, right? So sorry if that was a little bit long and rambling, but that's how I integrate NLP today.
0: And I think very much because our audience is entrepreneurs on different parts of their journey. I think that really does resonate because just even the simple concept of Being able to bring mirroring and sort of listening to what, how people describe, not just listening to what they're saying, but also the style and being able to realize it can help a lot because we're getting into these points on our journeys where we do it because first we think we can just have people do things we ask them to. And then the moment, as I always joke, running a company is so easy except for the people. And it's both the best part and the most difficult part. I always just yeah. joke at my team when I mess up the people part. I'm just like, Oh, oh people that, you know, whatever that meme that goes around. I'm just like, oh, yeah. "People!" that's my like, okay, I, I got that wrong. But practicing that type of understanding of communication, it's not just that one-off. I do think as you talk about life term, it allows us to surprisingly get better. It's always in that I'm better at this. Wait, when did that happen? And I like, that kind of thought process of doing so, I think I'm going to definitely spend a little time as I get back on my own acquisition and entrepreneurship journey, you know, and looking to once again have people more than just my small little team of lab rats. Well, they're not lab rats, laboratory <laughs> assistants, as I call them right now. Please don't tell my team I just call them lab rats.
1: <laughs> Wait, your your but podcast still. has a pretty large audience, and my guess is they're in it, so. I know you meant Yeah, you. yeah they
0: are. They are I like that kind of bringing. So you talk about the three inflection points. Could you maybe explain what you do and how people can see them? How do you talk about these inflection points? Well,
1: I'll just leave that to you. Yeah. So if you mean the guru guy gladiator model, you know, then I would say, you know, so there's a couple of things. So we launched Canada Advisors three and a half years ago and it caught fire. Now, I wasn't learning how to code or developing some new strategy that hadn't been done before. I just took 30 plus years, of um, my business development activity and turned it into my business. And I just continue to live in what Arthur Brooks would call crystalline intelligence rather than kind of more of that fast twitch muscle. So I'm just passing along my experience, scar tissue and, you know, whatever kind of hopefulness I can give to others, I often will talk about the idea that best way to understand candor advisors is that if you take the best elements transactionally in terms of creating the competitive tension that gets a higher sale price and better terms. If you look at, you know, McKinsey's transaction advisory group or Mollison company or Goldman Sachs's investment banking practice, and then you add in a big slug of Brene Brown and uh, maybe a little bit of tony robbins like you get some version of me right my advisory board because candor has become big pretty quickly and we get to kind of pick and choose our projects and we've developed another business called ebitda university to start to help entrepreneurs who maybe can't afford candor advisors or aren't quite ready to go to market yet. But one of the things I did early on was develop an advisory board so that I would be running my ideas for the growth of our business past people who have had a lot of success, who understand what I'm trying to accomplish, really know me, both the good parts and the character defects. And and we both put enough you know, kind of in into our relative um, friendship and relationship bank accounts that we could take withdrawals from time to time without it hurting the relationship. One of the guys on my advisory board, Kevin Hoffberg, who is a very accomplished consultant and senior executive who's now retired, calls this the guru guide gladiator model, where you believe that you're hiring me for my experience and my knowledge. That's the guru part. And that is true I know a lot about this. I am a subject matter expert when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. I have been through thousands of materials on companies that could get bought or sold. I've been through hundreds of due diligence processes. I've been personally involved in around 65 transactions. You know, we have two deals in market right now, three consulting clients and about a half dozen that you know are kind of queuing up. So that guru part, well, that's legit, but you know, that's only academic the guide piece and this is critical with the inflection points is that each inflection point at each decision that you need to make in continuing your entrepreneurial journey into either selling this business because you have another idea and you want to endow the next adventure or selling this business to be done so you can spend more time with your family or in your nonprofit or developing your ability to surf or play golf. Like if I'm there for you at those inflection points, I can share with you not only how I would view them, but also how I've seen other people successfully navigate those inflection points. Um, so that's the guide piece, the gladiator and people will sometimes get this wrong. Yes, I will definitely do battle with the buyer when they try and drag out due diligence or change the terms of the deal, or I will, you know, go toe to toe with the lawyers when they're too slow on marking up the purchase agreement or they're not getting the disclosure schedules done the right way. But the more important gladiator piece is really, I'm doing battle with current you who is in fear and your own worst enemy on behalf of future you that you've already told me who you wanna be, you've already told me what you wanna get to. And when we're in the middle of the transaction and they're asking questions that seem invasive and accusatory, I get you to take a beat and say, listen, this is just par for the course. This is just what people do in this process. And I have to believe enough in what we're doing and the purpose of what we're doing that I risk our relationship to be able to get you to that right outcome even when you're angry at me as the person who's delivering the tough news and you know part of it is that i'm experienced enough that i know you're going to go through it i've seen other people successfully navigate it and i have some tools to get you through it and the other piece too is that i really really love entrepreneurs and i really love the idea that Whether you're selling a business to endow the rest of your life, net of inflation, taxes and expenses so that you never have to work again, or we're funding your next adventure, or even better, we're doing some combination of those two things. And we're putting money into your passion project, a nonprofit or something like that, and actually having impact more broadly. Like I'm all in for those journeys. So that kind of animates what we do.
0: I like that approach because I've been in the seat where I could have used that, but right now, yeah, I've mentioned multiple times in the show, and I kind of feel like a bridesmaid sometimes, and how many times I've come close, but not crossed over. I'm on a path of trying to acquire a company, acquisition entrepreneurship. And I think of the times where the entrepreneurs I'm, the sellers I'm talking to that have that sort of support guidance versus the ones that I think are either winging it, sort of as I have in the past, or just sort of don't have that or have it inverted. Let's just call it inverted advice, not you know, goodwilled, et cetera. But like I did, I got very close on a deal. And it was sort of like a real estate broker, a real estate transactional lawyer, and we kept talking about things and it was just like okay you know what this is just going to be too hard and the seller and i got along great but it was just like we couldn't cross over that chasm between us because we couldn't speak a common language couldn't find that language to make the deal happen so that is something in finding it it's like would have been great to have it when i sold and it is definitely great when I'm buying to see that, because yes, people are like, well, you know, you're gonna pay a little bit more when they're more, and it's like, well, yes, but the transaction is more likely to occur. And I looked for a transaction that transfers goodwill, i.e. it goes well long-term because, you know, I'm signing on a dotted line on a personal guarantee to the SBA and, you know, I prefer to actually have the company run well and do well long-term Then gave a couple hundred K off of a, you know, transaction because the seller didn't know but then hated me after the fact and sabotaged me. So yeah, it's a good emotional state to kind of find that type of partnership. But it's just, it's good business sense to be looking for that.
1: It is, but it's not sometimes an easy conversation because when we think of negotiating, it often you know, kind of has maybe not pejorative context, but there's this sort of adversarial kind of thing. And it doesn't have to be, it can be collaborative, even if both sides are a long ways apart. It's the fear on one side or both sides that make it aggressive, right? So like taking the negative energy out of that discussion and just kind of figuring out like you as an operator, a multi time entrepreneur who maybe hasn't grabbed quite the brass ring that you think that you're capable of. Listen, you know, join the party. I mean, I know guys that have sold businesses for nine digits, almost 10 digits who feel that way. Now, some of that is negative self-talk on their part. But I would also reference Scott Galloway, you know, the marketing professor from, I think he's at NYU Stern. And he's on, you know, I mean, he's one of the kings of podcasts, really a a marketing genius, great data company. You know he is i think an 11 or 13 time entrepreneur who's had three successful exits which means that his batting average is below 300 now his slugging average is massive because the the exits he has have have put him in a position to not have to worry about anybody's opinion and to truly be candid, and he's got a unique voice. And so, you know, he's really, really terrific for most entrepreneurs to listen to. But I will tell you that the numbers, if you look at kind of where Silicon Valley gets it wrong, and I will tell you where private equity gets it wrong too, is that entrepreneurs over 45 years old are far more successful than entrepreneurs under 45 years old. But Silicon Valley wants to put all of this venture capital money into 21, 29 year olds, you know, working away on their laptop at Starbucks, coming up with a better way to pour water. Right. I mean, and I'm not saying that they're not innovating and doing wonderful things, but show me an entrepreneur who's got some useful scar tissue, who's had a few disappointing outcomes or even failures, who is going to take that useful scar tissue and create a great business. Then as an investor, that's a guy I want to back as an advisor. That's a guy I want to help get across the finish line because that guy has a clearer why on where he wants to succeed. And one of the things we talk to people a lot about is that there are six secrets to a successful sale of a business. And this is not mysterious, but first you got to know your why. Second, your buyer has to match your why. If you want to ride off into the sunset in an all-cash deal, then a private equity firm is not the right buyer because they want you to hang around and they want to give you structure and they're not going to give you all cash up front. The third thing is you've got to professionalize your financials. Look, if your financials don't tell the story of the successful business you would describe, deal's going to fall apart. The letter of intent's going to reflect that. Due diligence is going to be really, really hard. The fourth thing is look, don't give up too much too soon. It doesn't take that much information to put together a decent indication of interest. And an IOI or an LOI are usually non-binding unless you're Elon Musk. And so, you know, you could put a (laughs) range-bound indication (laughs) or letter of intent together and see if there's a conversation to be had. Then the fifth thing is don't try and do it alone. I'm not saying you need to hire an investment banker or even, you know, at a lower level, a business broker, an exit planner but don't do it all on your own because there, you know, you're not getting any help. You're not getting any guidance. You're not getting affirmation of your best ideas. You're not getting challenged on your worst ideas. So you need some advisor, whether it's your Vistage group or your YPO forum or your CPA or attorney, you need some other guidance. And then the last thing is seller expectations are the number one deal killer. So be clear about your expectations. If you're a seller, and you know, you've got a 500,000 of EBITDA business, look, you're not gonna sell for $20 million. It's just not gonna happen. Nobody pays that kind of multiple for a business like yours. So if you're gonna go out into the marketplace and say, I'm only gonna sell if I get 10 or 20 million off a half a million of EBITDA, well, y- y- your process is not gonna succeed because you've got a needle in a haystack kind of approach to doing this. And so having reasonable expectations And not necessarily agreeing with the market, but saying, okay, if the market won't pay me for my business the way what I think the business is worth, let me pursue some alternatives. Maybe I can do a tax advantage transaction through an ESOP. Maybe I can develop a successor and finance the sale of my business. Maybe I can find somebody who's trying to business, you know, buy a business as an entrepreneur that wants it as an investment. And we can collaborate together on the right structure so that the risk transfer and the dollars come my way in the right time frame and creates a successful outcome for both of us. Right. So just having a reasonable expectation about how that process ought to go really, really critical.
0: I do think it constantly comes back to that because. I know just in the past year with the change in the interest rate environment, PE was coming down. You were seeing larger players moving into the down market because for them cash was so cheap, relatively, and they did not have to worry as much about operational things. Now with the rise of interest rates, there's still a lot of buyers and there's still stuff, but it does seem like, look, it's requiring in my belief in a lot of the conversations I have a stronger operational capability because you're not just going to be able to play the money game. You actually need to have these things work and work quickly, not just like, oh, we'll fix it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we'll fix it in in post-production. It's like, no, it needs to kind of work pretty quickly because it's expensive with high interest. And I think that has changed. While you know you may not see expectations, multiples haven't changed that much, except for the fact that there's a band where at least in the certain range that the s b a can or will you have know, that lovely one point five debt to earnings ratio, so it's like doesn't matter where you are, it's gonna come in around four percent, whatever it is, <laughs> yeah, we can do things that you know defer or contingent or you know subordinate and blah 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 but the reality is the money has to kind of fit this so everyone's expectations it does make the playing field a little nice because at the end of the day sure if you find someone outside or you find someone great but the playing field is this sorry I'm moving my hands off camera that really helps
1: You know, AJ, let me just, you know, double click on a couple of things you said there, because you touched on a number of important things. So most entrepreneurs think that when they're ready to sell, that's when they should go to market. Right. And they're not really sort of thinking about, okay. So is does EBITDA reflect the, you know, the current value of the company, like you don't sell in a down year, you don't sell when you're sick of like, you know, so first of all, there's where the company is, not just where <laughs> <I> learned that, <laughs> and, and look, um, you know, many great entrepreneurs have done that because they just cried uncle and said, I'm done. And that's fine, too. You know, there's a way to get a good transaction, even when the entrepreneurs burnt out. You just need to know that going in. Right. So. There's that. There's also, you know, what does the business cycle look like? If you sell in a down cycle, multiples will be down. If you sell in a period of time where the M&A market is not very frothy, you're going to sell at a down multiple, right? Then there's the interest rate environment, right? I mean, the cost of borrowing, especially in like unitronch deals for traditional private equity financing has doubled or tripled. And so the financial models have a hard time working. So private equity firms need multiples to come down to make deals work. To your point, they haven't come down, but what's happening there. And this gets into sentiment is if all the buyers who have a ton of capital need to put it to work, but they don't want to pay the multiples of where the market was a year ago, however, they need to put it to work or they have to give it back to their limited partners. They're going to do deals. They're going to give up on their price discipline. They're not going to like it, but they're going to need to rationalize why overpaying for this business because they're going to add their own capital, strategic guidance, and operating expertise that somehow this thing is all going to work out fantastically. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I would tell you that one of the other things that's happening here is that there is a larger, what I would call kind of a macro or mega trend that. The private equity business is moving from an outcomes-based business to an asset management business. The guys who own Blackstone or Carlisle will remain multi-billionaires, even if they never have another successful exit of a business, they no longer need the carried interest that they make on those deals. They make so much in asset management fees that it's no longer an outcomes-based business. Now, where it's still an outcomes based business is in the middle market and the lower middle market, where really, really talented private equity firms are still driving low double digit and even mid double digit returns. If you hear people that say that they're generating 20 plus percent returns on any kind of scaled basis in buying companies and selling them, I would run fast the other way. I don't think that's happening and I certainly don't think that's happening in the current environment. But, you know, look, that's my opinion as one guy, you know, as Teddy Roosevelt would say in the arena, but I would tell you that there are those dynamics going on. And if you're a seller getting a little feedback and trying to kind of test the waters and talking to people who are in the marketplace before you retain anybody, before you decide, okay, damn the torpedoes, let's go to market, right? Getting some feedback, figuring out whether the valuation environment from sentiment, from economic cycle, from borrowing costs makes sense for the number you need to hit to also accomplish your why i it might be disappointing but it also will save you a lot of money and a lot a lot more heartache and you know kind of emotional travail
0: let's kind of talk about two things one what's the number one thing i mean because you talk a lot about making sure people understand their why and i think that's one of those things that comes across and, yeah, you know, what is this? Yeah, you because know, sometimes it's like the consultancy, you write that paragraph and it sits there. And is this the most important thing an entrepreneur can do when they are, let's just call it that mid-journey, just past seven, they are starting to think this could be. What is that most valuable thing you think they can do to prepare right before it's valuable to talk to you.
1: Yeah, so the emotional work is definitely finding the why, right? What's the purpose behind whether you're going to market or whether you're taking in investment capital? It's like, look, are you ready to retire? Do you want to spend more time with your family? Is there something else that you'd like to try? Do you already have enough money and um, you don't want to go to work anymore? Are you burnout? Do you want to avoid the next down cycle? You know, do you think the country's going to hell in a handbasket and you want to sell and move to a different country? I mean understanding that will inform how you respond to any buyer right you don't have to tell them that but your advisor should know that so that's really really critical and then the other thing is that like look if your advisor who's in the market every day tells you that at eight hundred thousand of adjusted ebitda no matter how clean your business looks and how differentiated it is from the competition you're only going to get maybe four times and you're not going to have more than four or five potential bidders. But if you could somehow get yourself up to a million and a half, either by doing an acquisition or by hiring a revenue consultant or by taking a little less in distributions and ramping up sales and then eventually kind of scaling that so that it shows up in increased profitability so you get to a million and a half, two million. And now all of a sudden you're in the sweet spot where Private equity firms will bid and they'll cause the strategic buyers to be willing to pay more and you create that competitive tension that get to a bigger outcome. A lot of what we do for our consulting clients is help them figure out what the valuation looks like on their current business. Whether that's enough, then either we or someone in our network can help them sell the business at the maximum of that valuation and the best terms for that. Or if that wouldn't be enough, for them to be willing to exit, then what does it take to get there and which things will detract from value? Like, do they have big customer concentrations? We looked at a super cool business two years ago that essentially moves around the racks and displays within big box retail stores. Fantastic business. Super, like I had no idea this happened. I always thought that if a grocery store was gonna change the way it was configured, They took all the products off the shelves, put them in the back of the store, and then um, reinstalled new stuff. They did it, yeah. (laughs) That's not the way it happens. There are companies that come around with like these, these special conveyors that lift that stuff intact off the ground and move them around the store, right? So, but this business had an 85% customer concentration with Walmart and the other 15% was with Home Depot. No financial buyer is going to buy that business because You know, Walmart and Home Depot are what private equity people would call silver bullet risk, right? One shot, dead, right? You know, if they change one thing. Yeah, that's right. So what do they do? They need to reduce Walmart down to 50% customer concentration. They're never going to get them to five or 10 But if they could reduce them to 50%, then the buyer could reasonably say, all right, so we'll make this deal conditioned upon not just negative consent, but positive consent. Walmart has to agree to our buying the company and, you know, being willing to keep the current contractual terms or extend the terms. Right. But they don't always like what we're telling them because it might take, you know, if you're talking to an entrepreneur who's already burnt out, wants to exit or is eager to retire and doesn't want to work for three more years. And that's how long it would take to get there. Look, that's why we named the firm Candor Advisors, not because we like delivering hard truth and, you know, say, hey, let the chips fall where they may. I think that we're compassionate about the way we deliver that. But I would also say, we don't argue with the market. You know, the market is what the market is. I don't try and analyze why private equity firms who are better buyers of businesses seem to never stop asking questions. I mean, they wanna ask them all the way up until you've already you know, released signature pages and the deal should have closed. They're still asking questions. That happens, I think, because they're not operating people. On the other hand, strategic buyers usually aren't as good at buying businesses. But they're easier to work with because they understand the operational elements of the business and they don't want you, the entrepreneur, to get distracted while you're trying to run the business and sell the company. They don't want to create financial harm by distracting you. right? So what we try and do is make sure that the the seller understands what the marketplace looks like and how to get to the right outcome. And because we've structured our model so that we get consulting fees that are plenty and we get success fees that are kind of icing on the cake, we're not really over-indexed to getting to a sale if it's not the right thing. There have been several times where we've been looking at nine-figure sales where the night before the transaction was supposed to close, the founder called me and said, I'm not sure I want to do it. The first thing out of my mouth every time, whether we get a success fee or not, and this is not because I stand on some pedestal or something like that, is my purpose, the thing that animates us at Candor Advisors, getting founders to the best outcome. So if the best outcome even the night before, after nine months of work and millions of dollars of legal and accounting expenses have transpired on both sides, is that the founder has decided they've changed their mind. And I'm all in on that founder and I'll be the designated a-hole that calls everybody else and says, seals off. But I will talk to the founder about, hey, look, people go through this a lot when they've seen the net after tax proceeds analysis and they think, now I'm going to have to start paying my own Amex bill and traveling on my own dime and not running the car payment through the company anymore and i'm just going to live off the you know kind of systematic returns of my index funds or the stuff that my financial advisor says that i'm going to get for a return and i'm going to give up my business and my identity and my walking into the office and being in charge of everything it is natural for somebody to second guess that the night before that's like pre wedding jitters and pre closing jitters look very much the same aj i do not doubt it i mean
0: and there's slightly less emotional baggage in walking away from that type of situation, you know, marriage. I think some people carry their jitters into their marriage just because they don't want to have to deal with it versus a little less of a thing. Well, let's take this back to you, Kurt. You do a lot of work and you've brought a lot of expertise and you are working on your own expertise capabilities to help other people be successful, separate from. Candor, success. How are you going about defining your success? You know, let's talk about now defining success, but is there also some B, BHAG? Let's, you know, however you define big success in the long-term.
1: Yeah, there is, there very definitely is. I mean, look, I have a list of goals that have more to do with kind of experiences and feelings than they do with financial targets. So I wanna be in complete partnership with my wife and everything that that means. I want to invest in my kids emotionally, financially. I want to be supportive. I want to be there for them. That doesn't mean that I try and take away the life lessons that they could learn if they were on their own. I want to give generously. I mean, look, my wife is a philanthropic consultant. She does a lot of very impactful work. She works with both large and small organizations, and we have a donor-advised fund, and we give a lot of money. We contribute a lot to the DAF. It's a lot for us. It's not McKinsey Scott money. It's not, you know, hedge fund impresario money, but it's a chunk for us. And we, we make that a meaningful part of things. I don't really want to scale candor advisors in the sense that I don't want to have 10, 12 other people doing what I do. That's the way you build an investment bank. I want to lever it. You know, look, we use artificial intelligence to help us build decks. We use it to control our web content. We run things through what's called the gunning fog index to make sure that our stuff is understandable because I want to have the broadest reach possible. And that's also why we launched EBITDA university because what we were finding is that a lot of people were contacting us that were too small to get to the right kind of outcome for the network that we have. And if we don't know a business broker or an investment bank that we can refer it to, and it's not, the way I can, like I'm constrained on the time I can spend by the number of projects I work on. And we have a big network of other, you know, investment banks that we refer things to regularly, but if they won't take it and I can't work on it, I still want to help that entrepreneur. So what we did was set up hours per week of my time to run classes. One of them is completely free. We go through the six secrets to selling a business. I do that in detail. One of them is a crash course on why the buyer of a business can look like a full-time predator and you as the seller might be part-time prey, you know, that's less than hundred dollars. Right. And if you come through an advisor, you get a coupon, you can buy that for even less. And then we have six month course where every other week we meet for 60 to 90 minutes. And we talk about the most critical things you need to do as an entrepreneur to get to an exit that's less than $500. Right. And so, so, you know, what we're trying to do there is come up with as many solutions as possible. Those things are, look, I'm not doing this purely for nonprofit reasons. I mean, those things have, you know, EBITDA University is a much more scalable business than Candor Advisors is. And I can lever both of those businesses because, you know, look, I started out three and a half years ago, when I launched Candor Advisors, just hoping that I would cover my part of our expenses. And we would keep salting a little way for retirement. And we'd be able to make our house payments and take some trips. And we outkicked our coverage. We became a seven digit business fast and we're on our way to eight digits, probably in the not so distant future. That was not our expectation. And when I talk about it that way, it sounds like a humble brag. And that's, you know, I don't wanna sound, you know, at all disingenuous about this. I'm just saying that the journey that the entrepreneurs we work with are on we are on too and it just helps us to kind of double down on how important this stuff is because like i'm really really clear about my why and i love the fact that simon sinek the the guy the why guy did not protect that intellectual property and i've heard him interviewed about this and he said look my goal with it was to have as great an impact as i possibly could and if i had protected the intellectual property and somebody had to license it from me so first of all i would spend so much time and money chasing down all the people that were using it and not paying me and that would be a lot of negative energy i'm not about that but the other thing too is that it wouldn't go it had no chance of going viral if i tried to protect it and so we give away our videos we give away our content you know i want to have impact all
0: right, we can, I was about to say, the one quick thing I do know though, his second, his follow-up 10 plus years later is more structured to the traditional, like this is our intellectual property and you use these things and we sell it. But yes, the why is, it is very interesting that that is, but his follow-up is more structured because he's like, yeah. oh, I gotta I got make a living off of this. But sure. I do like that it's open. Kirk, how can the audience find you? What's the best way, both Candor advisors, and then also just to learn more
1: about what you're doing and thinking and talking about? Yeah, I'm pretty visible on LinkedIn on my own, not Candor's feed, Kirk Mitchie. Yeah, you have some great content. Yeah, that's a And so I post weekly there. We also have a pretty big digital marketing campaign where we're blasting out to 50 or so thousand businesses per month with our videos and some of the other content. You know, people can find us at candor-advisors.com and there are around a hundred videos that are completely free. There's a lot of other great content there. You know, dig in, spend as much time as you want there. If there's something we can specifically do or you have a specific question, the call to action button, the little green button says talk to Kirk. And then, you know, EBITDA University, even though it's a like it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue unless you're in the deal business. But, you know, it's EBITDA EBITDA University dot com. And again, feel free to sign up for the free course. We don't need EBITDA University to make money. The idea is to have impact. So I'm not gonna say that I, I won't get my feelings hurt if nobody ever signs up for a course where they have to pay. But I will tell you that you know, we had a couple of fantastic entrepreneurs who've had multiple sales on the free version last week. I think they I learned as much from them as they did from me. It was a wonderfully collaborative conversation. So. Yeah, that's that's the best way to get to us.
0: All right, cool. Well, definitely have all that in the show notes and our social media and the email when we announce the episode coming out. Kirk, you've shared so much. Thank you so much for coming out today. There's so much the kind of thing to really that kind of focusing on the why and bringing it into the different inflection points and the different yeah you know, where you are, why you want to, how to bring that and how to use that as part of your guide on your journey as an entrepreneur. I think there's so much to kind of take out of this episode. So thank you so much for coming on the show
1: today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, AJ. I love being here and I love what you're doing. I, uh, I told you this before we started recording, but I learned a ton from just going through some of the episodes. You're, you're highlighting a lot of great entrepreneurs and a lot of really, really cool tools. So thank you.
0: Well, uh, you're going to go right up there with the great resources you know, that we've been able to talk to. So, Kirk, thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to that. This, this is really great. And we're going to have a lot of fun putting the show notes together on this. So please go check out Kirk. Go to his LinkedIn. There are some great videos where he talks about different things, but also on the site, you know, just talking about ways to look at different parts of that exit preparing journey. As someone who winged it um, after the fact, this would have made my life a gazillion times better. So please go check it out. All right, everyone. Talk with you soon.